Uh, you may be seated. I am not going to read a scripture to begin this. It's, uh, I'm doing another bits and pieces, which I've, this is the eighth one I've done over the course of the last few years. And uh, so I've got three different topics today I'll preach on that have been topics I've been conceptually wrestling with and um, wanted to share on them. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would uh, protect the pulpit, that you'd protect your people and this pastor, that what we think and how we act would be proper and true, that your kingdom might continue to, to grow and that we might do our part in it. In your name, amen. So the first uh, bits and pieces sermon I want to share is called the language of war or the language of the cross. The language of war or the language of the cross. And this first part has to do with Battles, Christian battle in this world, because frequently Scripture uses language that speaks of war, it speaks of battle, it speaks of the fight, etc. And God's Word tells Christians we have enemies to fight against. We sing songs like Onward Christian Soldier, but what is that language saying? What is the battle to look like? Are we supposed to use guns and knives and bazookas? Some religions convert people by threat of harm. Is that what we're supposed to uh, do as Christians? One passage, I think, and it's the one I'm going to look at here, Puts this, in, puts this with the proper shine, okay, to the question. If you could take a look and turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. I'd like to look at five verses there. Six verses there. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. I'll read it. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter, daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay, so here Jesus uses the language of warfare. You see it in verse 34, I have not come to bring peace to the earth, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
Yikes. Is Jesus really saying there that he wants his people to use physical weaponry to fight their family members? No, he's not. Yet he does use the word sword. And the sword was the lethal weapon of the ancient world. Governors were said to have been given the sword as the tool to enforce justice, for example. This is what Paul said in the letter to the Romans, chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, listen to this, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So then... It is good for a governor to use a sword for justice to carry out God's wrath on wrongdoers. But Paul is not saying there that every man has been given the sword for that purpose. Rather, he has specifically put the sword of justice into the hands of governing authorities. With it, they are to be a terror to bad behavior. Nevertheless, okay, I draw your attention back to Jesus' words. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does he mean by that? He's using non-literal language to make a point. Sword is a word Jesus uses to represent here conflict. Conflict. I bring a sword. I bring conflict. By sword, Jesus is warning us that we will be at odds as his followers. We will be at odds with the people dear to us. This conflict is what most people would prefer not to experience. We'd prefer peace. We'd prefer peace. A a society of good people will always want peace. You've got to hear this, Christian, especially if you're a Christian that gets worked up. A good society, a good people will always want peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's how God made things to be in harmony, a state of shalom. When everything is right, We are at peace. It is a wickedly motivated person who prefers war. Proverbs 6.14 tells us the perverse heart, the perverse heart sows discord. Hear that. The The perverse heart sows discord. But then why is Jesus telling his disciples he has not brought peace, 
but conflict. Well, it's so they know what to expect. You see, his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is a kingdom of truth and righteousness. And the people who, who don't want that life, and there are many people who don't want that life of truth and righteousness, the people who don't want that life are sure to oppose it, his kingdom. And you, they will oppose you. The world to which Jesus came was a world that did not honor God with their hearts. I'm talking specifically about the world as Israel was experiencing it. That community, it was an upside-down world, upside-down. The once bright and shining community of God's people had turned dark. They were lovers of self, not lovers of God. His law had been traded for the traditions of men. Fine-sounding arguments. Fine-sounding arguments with trite sayings, bumper sticker sayings. But designed to buttress and camouflage the general disobedience of the culture. We have fine-sounding arguments throughout our society. Nice bumper stickers, nice slogans, but often they are used to support wickedness and hide it to make it look like it's a good thing. So Jesus tells them, there's going to be conflict for you if you live for me. You won't have peace, but the sword will be your experience. It does not even say Jesus was giving his disciples the sword. It's just that they would experience the sword. Although the word of God is referred to as the sword... And so it could be referring to that. Certainly it's the word of God that's going to create the conflict in a home. But he's not necessarily saying, I give you a sword. Go at it. He explains the conflict, if you see there. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Imagine that. You might anticipate conflict out in the world, right? But to be told that you would experience it within your own household, crud, that sucks. There are people you love in your home. They're the ones you'd never abandon. So what do we take from that? What we take is that the disciples were li- likely they grew up in, in a house or in a household that was upside down a little or a lot. 
They likely grew up in an upside-down village or an upside-down with upside-down relatives and neighbors, etc. Upside-down nation. At least in some cases, that was true. And it's true for you. It's true for me. I suggest anyone in any place where God's law is slighted or ignored or mistranslated and incorrectly applied, these people in these moments will be where conflict arises. As long as you determine to live your life right side up. If you determine to live your life right side up, then guess what? You're going to have the occasional run-in with a sister or a son. So these are the moments of choice for the disciple. And Jesus warns them, whoever loves father or mother more than me, okay, in those moments of conflict, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. At odds with your family. That is close. I want you to really hear this. The language of war does not, does not look like chest bumping and high fives, bro. Hurrah, hurrah. That misses the mark completely. Doesn't it? Like when James and John, when they were with Jesus and the Samaritan village didn't want him coming anywhere near and, and passing through. And what did James and John want to do? Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them? High five, bro. That's idiotic, really. No, our enemies can be people we love. which all enemies are supposed to be loved, Jesus said. So what happens here? Jesus turns the language of war into the language of the cross. The cross represents suffering and sacrifice, doesn't it? The conflict or spiritual battle was to cut very close to home for his disciples, but the disciple was supposed to carry his own cross in that battle. He was to be willing to suffer. No, Jesus doesn't give us the sword, but a cross. He promises suffering to those whose family members do not want to comply with God's word. He tells them to carry on with their cross for the sake of their families, and in order to be worthy of the high calling of being a Christian, verse 38, he tells them that their own life may take some hits from those they love the most. But that 
they will find that there is no better life to live but the upright one. So be committed to Christ in every conflict and don't back down from truth. Don't back down from truth, but don't be eager for a fight. Speak the truth in love. Second sermon. Husbands, make sure your wife is respected by your children. I'll say that again. Husbands, make sure your wife is respected by your children. The fifth commandment declares, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Mothers tend to spend a lot more time than fathers with the kids. Especially when children are younger. They do not have many structured activities like school or chores, self-directed play, friends, jobs, etc. as they grow older. No matter the age of your children, fathers, you must never tolerate them to talk back or strike out at their mom. Never. She is your wife. She is the weaker vessel that God gave to you to cherish and protect. She is your helpmate and co-heir, and the children are your charges. You must step in at moments of dishonor and rule sternly. This does not mean you hate your children. Oh, no. It's the opposite of that. It means you love your wife. It also means you love your children. And I say this with two proofs. The first comes from Hebrews 12. I think you should read the whole chapter of Hebrews 12, but I'm going to simply read verse 11. It says there, for the moment, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you lovingly and consistently discipline your children, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Be consistent in your discipline. Stay on top of what you've instructed your children to do or not to do. Listen to this. Be consistent in your discipline. Stay on top of what you've instructed your children to do or not to do. Moms, you will avoid many displays of rebellion by being vigilant. Don't let them, okay, become careless about your instruction. Or it would be better that you had not given the instruction. You hear that? Here's what I mean, okay? If you tell them not to stand on the couch, I'm just bringing this up, okay? This is something I have told my children. If you tell them not to stand on the couch, then stay on top of that instruction. Do not just let it go as if your words were unimportant. Do not get so distracted with your phone or dishes or a book or show or laundry or meal preparation or whatever that you 
I should say that they go right back to doing the thing you told them not to do. Otherwise, otherwise, quit making rules you don't care about. That's another trick as well. If you don't really care, then don't open your mouth and say something. Say anything at all to them. That's fine. I know that's a tall order. Vigilance. It's a tall order, especially for mothers with the quiver full. But the trouble is that you're teaching them that you can be disrespected. You can be disrespected. It's okay. And God says you must not be. The second proof, fathers, fathers, that stepping in at moments and ruling sternly when your children disrespect their mom is found in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, Paul writes, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Paul's still saying this, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. See? A good and longer life is in store for children who learn to respect mom and dad. I'm not speaking of heartless and fear laden respect, but honor. Honor is respect that has kind of been combined with adoration. When respect and adoration get combined, you have honor. It's the only wholesome way to respect mom and dad. It's the only wholesome way to respect God. You don't honor God because you feel like he's a tyrant and you better obey him or look out. You should fear him and look out, but because you adore him. One more thing. Do not just deal sternly with your children for dishonoring mom when they are little, but when they have grown older too. I don't, think, I don't think it's as huge a problem for children who've been disciplined properly at younger ages. But if they become disrespectful as teens or as young adults, look out. You deal with that. You've got to deal with that. They may have to find another place to live. And moms, don't stand in the way when your husband needs to confront dishonor, for you must respect authority too. If you are concerned about the harshness of some punishment, talk about these things with your husband outside of the children's presence. And need I say, none of this condones heartless abuse of children. It's silly that I should even mention that today. Love must be the root of discipline. Third sermon topic, and this one I think really should hit us all. Um, Jesus said, 
that we must beware of the leaven of teaching and teachers. He says this in Matthew 16. I'm going to read the portion to you in a second. But let me begin with this preface. Truth doesn't change. God remains the same forever, and so his word stands perpetually as the only standard by which men should live. If church elders and professors declared the truth of God's word 500 years ago or 1,200 years ago, it would not matter, for people today would still be able to apply it. Old truth is the same as modern truth. Truth is truth. If we were to transport the Apostle Peter and and bring him to 2022, put him in modern apparel and made American English his language, his tongue, he'd teach the same things he was teaching in the first century, only to different people with different challenges. But his instruction would be the same. What does God tell us to do, he'd ask. He would show us how to appropriate scripture. Turn to Isaiah and let me show you there. Or haven't you read my second letter? So what was Jesus' concern about the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? He was telling his disciples to be careful of the things that they taught, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, take a look at Matthew 16, 5 through 12. Matthew 16, 5 through 12. <clears throat> when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began dis- discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you, are, that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves or the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they taught untruth, untruth. It was like leaven spread so throughout the loaf, but unnoticeable. And though God's word does not change and is perpetually sufficient, these religious leaders, what did they do? They harnessed some some portions of it while they dismissed other parts of Scripture. As a result, they were blind guides who could swallow whole camels but strain at gnats. They made big deals out of little things and neglected the weightier matters, we are told. People who followed such teaching were in trouble. They were being manipulated. 
they were sure to fall into a pit following those blind leaders. Okay, now listen. Today, we also must train ourselves to beware because we can be so easily strung along by false teaching. Sometimes we can be tempted to focus all of our attention on one portion of God's word at the exclusion of other parts. Camels and gnats. I see this as an easy attempt an easy temptation for you congregants as well as us teachers in this church. How could we focus too much on one thing and not enough on another? By paying so much attention to what's going on in life around us. Too much attention, maybe. It's because of the things that start to consume our our minds in our days. We hear things. On some podcasts, we see things in some Facebook post. We got CNN, we've got Fox News, we've got a talk show radio host, jabber, 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 and on with today's latest concern. We get nervous, we dwell on those things. And then we look to the Bible for answers, which is a good idea. But if we just slow down and step back and rest in God, we'd realize that often, often, others are telling us what to think about each day. Others are telling us what to think about each day. Today you must think and talk about the war in Ukraine. Blah, 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 blah. And that'll last for a few weeks. The next topic you will be told to come up with opinions on is the Alaskan pipeline. Blah, 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 blah. Or the shooting at a school. Blah, 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 blah. How do the police respond to it? Blah, 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 blah. What does the community think? Blah, 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 blah. Or gun control. Blah, 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 blah. Or Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. And you know, you would not have made any of those things an important topic yourself. Except that the media or government or social media has decided they want you to talk about it because they want to talk about it. They want you to think about it because they've decided to think about it. I always marvel at the trillions of things, trillions of things in the world that could be counted. It could be counted as current news events. Why is it, then, that the the big three or four media outlets seem to be in such agreement at the three things that they consider the nightly news. And they're all in agreement. You just, you just go to one live stream to the next or you switch channels or however you're taking this stuff in. Each night, no matter which place you look, it's always these three to five stories, and they're all agreeing, this is the late-breaking news. 
well, what about the other trillion things that they didn't think was important to them? It amazes me. And yet, we're like, what should we think about now? Okay, let's talk about that. Well, I believe this. I think this should be. And what does the Bible say about that? Okay, what should we think about now? And it's just the same. Taking somebody by the nose and leading them down a path. It seems like engineered sensationalism. Oh, no. No, no, someone says. These are independent journalists who have scoured the billions upon billions of daily events and locked in with complete objectivity upon the important stories. That's why they're reporting them. These then become the cud to chew by talk show hosts and podcasts and various forms of social media. Everyone seems to fall for it. The tail has wagged the dog. And now it's in our heads, Christian. Well, I can't believe it, yeah. My sister just posted yesterday, look at, look at this, and we pass it along. We know the true story on this, and we pass it along, because that's what we've been told to, to think about for the last month. Is it that important? It might have some importance. But what about the other trillion things? Now we think we must pontificate on Amber Heard. She's a liar. She's changed her story three times and contradicted herself. Poor Johnny. I'm glad he's standing up for his reputation. No. How dare you? She suffered abuse, physical, emotional, and sexual. This is the problem with the world. Women are not believed. Right? Who gives a concern over those types of things? But we're told this is what's important. And it titillates us. We want to see. What did he do to her? Yikes. On and on, though, this goes. On and on. We're told what is important and what we should be talking about. Yet rarely do these media and social media sources see the world as God sees it. They each seem to react mostly to someone's propaganda feeding us the daily talking points. The three to five daily talking points. I'm sure there was much, much going on in the Roman world in the days of the early church. Probably a trillion news events. And some of them very much affecting the church. But for many, I think they were oblivious to it. Because why? They were hammering out a life to honor God with. They were trusting in Him to be their stay. Am I saying that not confronting some of the things that come up in the world around us is what we should be about? Not confronting? No. 
but for crying out loud. How much time we spend on these things is incredible to me. And who told us to think about them? Now here you are, congregant. Here you are, preacher. As you approach God's word, you must beware of the leaven and not allow these concerns to infiltrate your approach to Scripture. Don't swallow camels and strain at gnats. And I see how this can happen in two ways. When we got all these things boiled up and broiling inside of us, right? And we go to Scripture, all of a sudden, the things that stick out to us are the sentences, the verses, that might inform us about this thing we've been thinking about. This sensational thing that we are wrestling with in our minds. It's like our brains begin to steer Scripture or toward the Scripture we want to look at for relevance or irrelevance regarding what? Not regarding what God says are relevant and irrelevant things, but relevance or irrelevance based upon whatever today's issue is supposed to be that we're talking about. We're thinking about Amber and Johnny. And so verses we look up that stick out to us have to do with bearing false witness. Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Or mercy for victims. Or justice for victimizers. That guy. And though it's good to want to ask what would God's word have to say to this situation, the question we should ask is why are we constantly looking to God's word to deal with the salacious and the obscene and sensational hand-selected top news events rather than looking to Scripture for the important things that should be taking place in our lives. So that's one problem. We are reactionary. We are reactionary Scripture readers, if we read it at all. Typically, We get our scripture read to us by a point made by some podcast or Facebook post. We are reactionary scripture readers, and then we react to what we read based upon what the societal media world is telling us to think about. That's goofy. Easy. Very easy to do. We all fall prey to this, but it's goofy. You're not building life all of a sudden based upon God's word. Now you're reacting, trying to keep up. What? Really? Russia's the good guy? Ukraine's the bad guy? Where'd you learn this? I got to understand this better. No, no. Russia's the bad guy? And on and on. I mean, endless the sources for some of this stuff. So you can spend a lot of time That doesn't mean that one or two of the top news stories are not important. Just saying. Three or four or five stories out of trillions 
and each simultaneously agreed upon by the major news sources? Come on. You can see how we get out of whack. The tail's wagging the dog. We should be wagging the tail. The church should be making the news. The second challenge is mostly the preachers. And and keep this honest. We turn to chapters and books that, that we can apply to the life of the congregation. So then we're responsible to ask the question, why? Why am I choosing to preach from this verse or chapter or book of the Bible? As you can imagine, a a congregation listening to a series on, say, lamentation, lamentations, is in for a different ride than the series on Song of Songs or Proverbs or Matthew. Even moving between Psalms can give you different vibes. One says something like this, the other is it's night and day. Pitchfork and a flower, different. Now we, Bob and I, at this point, have got to pick a text to preach on. But which one? Somebody would say, oh, no, no, don't pick a text. You just expositionally work your way through a book of the Bible. Oh, I agree. That is the way to be. I'm not doing that today. That is the way to do it. However, why did we pick that book? And if we pick the book and are preaching through the passage, are we harping on certain sentences as being more important than other? Are we truly hearing what the writer meant to say, or are we picking out of it what we want to say? It's a challenge. Now we've got to pick a text to preach upon, but which one? If we, Bob and I, and any any one of us but as preachers, if we become all riled up over this matter or that event, then we might be tempted to hone in on some very specific passages and verses to apply our angst or our fear or a prescription. If we dwell all week on, i just using this, okay? I'm not saying this is the event or... But if we dwell all, all week on the war of, in Ukraine, because that's what our favorite talk radio guy is teaching about, then what will we do on Sunday? I know it's on my mind, and I think I should preach it. Now give me some Bible verses that I can apply. Right? It could go that way. It's like I've got a hammer, and now I'm looking for a a few nails. And listen, I'm, I'm not saying any preacher can ever be completely objective. He might be useless as a pastor if he were frankly. Nevertheless, we need to have our eyes wide open to the process of sermon preparation and God's desire for the word to be thoroughly preached. So I I ask you to pray for yourself 
here and pray for your leaders. We avoid the leaven of the Pharisees by teaching the whole counsel of God with proper measure. Proper measure. And it doesn't always mean that you want to hear the proper measure. You cannot strain at a gnat, but then figure a way to swallow a camel. The writers of Scripture must be respected for their original intent. That is fail-safe. However, we, we preachers must be honest and ask, why have I picked this text? Because there's a good possibility Bob or I picked, picked the text based on something that was going on in our minds that we felt was important for you. Choosing a text because of current events is not always wrong. But again... Who has determined the importance of the event to begin with? Newsmax? CNN? How does the teacher, preacher, and layperson overcome themselves? How can we keep our hearts honest? It's difficult. We are not often objective, but subjective, too subjective. No one can get out of his or her own skin. The best remedy is to chain yourself to a broad, broad swath of Scripture and study to understand the original intent of the biblical author. Then apply that to your life in every facet. Personal, family, church, work, medicinal, educational, governmental, etc. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you would indeed work in us as your people, that these words, if they were not understood because of being too conceptual or too wordy or whatever, Lord, that you would... uh, Uh, Stir us to want to go online and listen to understand it, or questions could be asked. Lord, I I just ask that you uh, make yourself and your word real to us thoroughly, and that we would not be hoodwinked by the voices around us. In Jesus' name.